You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Domecast. I think episode number 36. This is Ben Brown with the Insider State Government News Service hosting this week. And I'm surrounded by some of the usual suspects, um, an intimate crowd, my colleagues at the News and Observer, Colin Campbell, Lynn Bonner, favorite reporters in the state with a great show for you. And we continue with what's really not really been a sleepy time for the legislature. I mean, they're not in session, but it kind of feels like old times up here. You know, the election stuff is happening. But if you've been in the legislative building or any of the hot spots on Jones Street this past week, you've seen legislators and you've seen lobbyists and you've seen legislative liaisons. It's been somewhat full scale. And want to get right to it um, and start by talking with Colin Campbell. Hello, Colin. Hey, Ben. How's it going? All right. Um, one of the committees that met this week was the Revenue Laws Study Committee. And what came out of that was a conversation about continuing tax reform that the Republicans in the legislature are basically famous for now. It's divisive. They get accolades from you know Forbes magazine. They get slammed by left-leaning groups as being unfair. But a presentation at this committee meeting was made um, as a case for continuing this tax reform. Colin, walk us through that. Who's supporting a continuance of tax reform beyond what we already have and why? Who's saying this and what are they talking about? So the folks that the legislators heard from uh, this week was the Tax Foundation, which is based in Washington, D.C. It's sort of a conservative-leaning think tank. They generally promote uh, business-friendly tax structures, and they study them all across the state. So they had a a guy there, uh, Scott Drinkard, I believe was his name, not Drunkard, as my autocorrect kept Mm. wanting to uh, (laughs) change his name to in my notes. Uh, He gave a presentation uh, showing sort of the the statistics they've come up with on North Carolina's tax code, how we've gone from, you know, uh, nearly the bottom of the country in terms of uh, a business-friendly tax structure uh, just two or three years ago to uh, up into the, the, you know, top 20 or so um, in the past year uh, alone. So they've, they're very, very, very pleased with how North Carolina has changed its tax code, mainly because we've gone to lower income taxes, uh, substantially lower on the corporate income tax side, um, and then broaden the the sales tax base. Uh, so they're uh, suggesting that North Carolina do more of the same if it wants to move up into the rankings. And when you heard from the legislators, they were very eager to to you know see our statistics mm-hmm. improve better uh, by by this group's metric. Of course, the flip side of that is that this was the only outside group that was invited to present anything to the Revenue Laws Committee this week. Uh, there was no liberal group suggesting that you know tax policies should go a different direction or that we were better off the way we were three or four years ago. Uh, that's not the case that you would hear from folks like the North Carolina Justice Center, these more liberal advocacy groups that want to see the earned income tax credit return. They want to see corporate taxes go up, not down, that sort of thing. Yeah, and the Tax Foundation is typically billed uh, as sort of uh, right-leaning, business-friendly, but but right-leaning. were there any left-leaning groups that responded to this presentation after the fact? Or? Yeah, well, I talked to the folks at the Budget and Tax Center, which is part of the, the Justice Center that I just mentioned, and they basically said, you know, look, the legislators basically brought in a group that was going to, they knew was going to tell them they did the right thing because they were following recommendations from that group from the get-go. So, of course, they're moving up in those people's rankings, but in reality, the 
uh, analysis this group has done doesn't take into effect uh, the you know amount of funding for for education, for infrastructure, for other things that the state needs. That all has to be part of uh, the overall picture of how business friendly North Carolina is, how competitive we are with with other states for attracting jobs here. And from what I understand, the the focus was kind of on the sales tax side of it. Um, there have been some sales tax changes, but you know what's left to do. What, what are they saying that we need to to do? Well, they basically said North Carolina has has done a good job in broadening the sales tax towards services. They pointed out that the economy, since the sales taxes were first instituted, you know, hundred years ago, uh, have really shifted towards a from a goods oriented economy, where if you buy a thing, you're going to pay sales tax on it to. Uh, where the majority of the economic transactions are, are more service-oriented, and that's not been covered by sales tax historically. Obviously, North Carolina has made few changes in that direction. We saw the year where movie taxes, or movie tickets started to be taxed. Uh, this coming March, I think it will be, the uh, auto repairs and another mm-hmm. sort of repair and installation things will jump on board. But there's still other sort of more politically uh, dicey areas that they haven't jumped into. There was discussion last session about uh, pet groomers and veterinarian services, and that got a pretty... Uh, major outcry. Or one legislator saying that uh, he took his dog to the vet after uh, this uh, proposal had been put out there and heard an earful because the mm-hmm. vet does not want uh, veterinary services to to be taxed. And obviously, they've they're a fairly powerful group. They keep your dogs alive. So, what, was there any talk of um, aim or schedule? Did the short session come up as something that uh, might bear some possibilities for this? Yeah, or? there seems to be an interest in in sort of doing it incrementally year by year. Um, one thing we did see for the short session is they've got already working on a draft piece of legislation that's going to come up uh, probably in the short session in some form, but they've already got everything written out. It just needs to be filed with the bill number. Um, and that's sort of doing some of the very minor tax changes that just for whatever reason uh, didn't make it through uh, in last year's session. But one of the things I thought was interesting was um, uh, expanding sales taxes to nonprofit groups that are, are operating some sort of sales entity for mm-hmm. the benefit of a state government uh, agency or a school. So that would be an example they said was a museum gift shop. Um, currently, you don't pay sales taxes there. Under this, you would have to pay, pay sales taxes there uh, if this bill passes in the short session. Um, and then you would see an exemption from that for uh, like high school athletic booster concession stands. So they wouldn't have to go to the trouble of, you know, putting a sales tax on a 50 cent Coke. But mm-hmm. for the, the folks uh, selling stuff uh, at the History Museum to, to benefit the History Museum, that's going to be taxed. Okay. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure we're going to hear more about this as we get closer to the short session and into it, um, which uh, is really, like, like I said, you know, it feels like we're in session for the past couple of weeks just because of the number of committee meetings that have happened. Yeah, well, but, you know, it's funny, like, uh, you, you get to sort of around the holidays and there's really no news to cover and you start to wish, oh, I wish the legislature was back in session. But it only <laughs> takes a couple of these three-hour committee meetings before you're, you're like, like, oh, boy. just yeah. y'all, y'all stay out of town until April. We're good. We'll, we'll, we'll figure stuff out. <laughs> well, thanks, Colin. So, Lynn Bonner joining me now. Um, as the public hopefully knows... Elections aren't like they were and attributable to statutory changes that the legislature approved in 2013, I think. And then as amended in 2015, you're you're going to need and let me get this straight because that's sort of the story right now here. Right. <laughs> um, generally speaking, you're going to need a valid photo ID to vote in the upcoming elections, except that, you know, for a reasonable impediment, you don't have the required ID. You can vote with a provisional ballot. Am I that's, saying that's that right. right. That's right. Um, this is the first year where um, people voting will be asked for a valid uh, ID, a photo ID. 
Um, and there's um, some conversation going on about what the law actually says and how the message should be getting across to the public. Right. Uh, the NAACP is saying that is urging people to go to the polls and vote, whether or not they have an ID, and that's that's right. But they're saying that. Um, the State Board of Elections in their uh, messaging campaigns is underplaying the fact that if you don't have an ID, you can sign a uh, basically a form that says, here's why I don't have an ID. Um, the Board of Elections, on the other hand, is saying that the message that the NAACP is, is sending is might be confusing to people because if you have one of these acceptable form of IDs, then you're going to be asked to show it. And um, I left it at home, or I don't want you. I don't want to show it to you. Is not going to be a valid reason for not showing it to someone to say, "Okay, here, uh, my face matches this picture." So the worry is that let's just say that I believe, based on the NAACP's message, that. I can just leave my ID in my wallet and simply do the provisional ballot. What's what's wrong with that in practice? Is it as simple as that, or, or no? Well, you the form says um, to be able to vote a provisional ballot says I don't have an ID, and here's why I could not obtain one. Um, so a person who decides, well, I just want to show my ID, cannot legally sign right. that. <laughs> that form that says right, I couldn't get enough. one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you leave your ID at home, um, really, you can still vote a provisional ballot, but you'll be asked to come back to the local board of elections and show your ID and say, "Yes, my val- my ballot should count." So um, it's it, f- for someone who has an ID and leaves it at home or. It, it's going to be a two-step process to get mm-hmm. your vote counted. And the NAACP is suing over this voter ID law, as we've covered to the courts, about access to the polls and whether it's right to put a quote-unquote you know, checkpoint between adults and their right to vote. Exactly. Uh, you know. This is all really mixed up with the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently the NAACP has – they've made this argument before um, – and recently they've wanted the uh, date for the federal um, hearing to begin. They want that pushback. That's supposed to start um, January Soon. 25th. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, in a couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, it's it's a mixed-up and confusing issue, but um, really the, the thought from the, the what the Board of Elections wants people to know is people coming to the polls uh, are going to be asked for an ID. Something else that's doubly confusing and something mm-hmm. I didn't know is that, um, at least for the time being, um, the on-site registration for early voting, that's, still, that's back on. Uh, so if you're not registered and you want to vote in the primary, you can, you can now register during the one-stop in-person process. And um, for the primary, for the time being, right. mm-hmm. the um, if you go to the wrong precinct on election day, you can still cast a provisional ballot that can count. 
Okay. Well, yeah, we, we could probably do a whole series on R- Domecast. Yes, on, on voting changes. Right. Yeah. So um, we're going to go ahead and take a break. Thanks, Lynn. And uh, we will be right back. Social Security believes the integrity of our programs is important. To protect the people we serve and the services we offer, we use many tools to identify, prevent, and stop fraud. We identify fraud by using tools that predict the chance of fraud happening. We also have stiff penalties that discourage people from committing fraud. Social Security has zero tolerance for fraud and so should you. If you suspect someone is committing Social Security fraud, report it online at http colon slash slash oig.ssa.gov slash report or call the Social Security Fraud Hotline at 1-800-269-0271. We're back here on the Domecast. Still got the same suspects here, Colin Campbell and Lynn Bonner. And Colin, getting right to it, um, we don't just cover state races. You know, we're the capital team, but we also reach up to the federal level because all politics is local. And sometimes the politograph kicks and we get some fairly notable um, things to write about in the U.S. Senate, or rather the candidates for the Richard Burr seat that uh, we have this year. Um, They've given us something to write about. And Colin Campbell, you're on this. Obviously, the incumbent is a Republican. The Democrats clearly want to restore themselves because, as it stands, North Carolina's U.S. Senate delegation is 100% GOP. But again, it's election season and some Democrat Democratic candidates are maneuvering against each other. Uh, Colin, give us some idea of, of what's spiking on this landscape. Yeah, before anybody gets to take on Richard Burr in November, uh, there's a it's technically a four-way uh, primary among the Democrats, although one candidate, uh, Ernest Reeves, I think is his name, is not uh, really that active. We haven't seen much of him. But there are three candidates that uh, do have uh, fairly active campaign organizations. Deborah Ross, sort of considered to be the, the front runner here, a former state legislator. Uh, Durham businessman Kevin Griffin, who is uh, tells me he's, he's self-funding his campaign, and we won't really know how much he's funding himself until the um, reports come in. He was kind of coy about exactly how much uh, he's spending to, to get his message out. And then uh, Chris Ray, who is the mayor of Spring Lake, which is a, a sort of a suburb of uh, Fayetteville down there. Uh, so the three of them are, are sort of facing off, and uh, we're starting to see what the message is going to be going into this uh, race between the three of them. Um, and it's going to culminate, I think, the, either the end of this month or next month with a pair of debates uh, that will be televised. So those will be fun to watch. But the the argument that uh, Griffin sort of started with mm-hmm. uh, and then Ray echoed a couple days later was that Deborah Ross uh, needs a second look because of her role as head of the American Civil Liberties Union in, the North, in North Carolina. Right. Uh, they say that that's going to mean she's going to get a ton of attack ads uh, from Burr and from the Republican Party that she supported things like uh, or she opposed uh, laws way back 10, 15 years ago uh, about allowing the Ten Commandments in school. She was opposed to that mm-hmm. um, and then allow, or, uh, starting a state sex offender registry. She opposed that on the grounds that uh, some of the people who are registered sex offenders were involved in some sort of family-oriented crime, and by publicizing their address, then you embarrass the rest of the family. Um, so those were things that have been put out there. So sort of like pre-attack ads to the attack sure. ads to say, well, let me attack you with what you might be attacked with uh, later on. And uh, sort of her campaign's response was just to ignore it. They they sent me a, a statement back that didn't mention either Griffin or Ray or the ACLU and just said she's always been you know, a supporter of uh, personal freedoms and that sure. sort of thing without really getting into uh, the weeds of, of what's being argued that there. But we'll, we'll see more of that. Uh, the question uh, in my mind is, is that really going to resonate with Democratic primary voters? Are they going to say, 
really you're you're attacking her for being in the aclu i'm a democrat i love the aclu Um, right so kind of the takeaway ends up being that her work history the impression anyway that's that is being put out there is that her work history makes her the vulnerable candidate to the opposing party and that makes her democratic primary competition stand out as, as, as a little more stout or yeah it seems to be that they're i mean I think they'd legitimately make a strong case that, you know, if if Richard Burr has to run against Kevin Griffin, who's never held an elected office before, there's not really any votes he's taken that you could criticize him for. He's just run a small business, which he says, you know, bring it on. If you want to criticize me for giving people jobs, go right ahead. You're not going to win that. Mm-hmm. And on Chris Ray's side, he's saying, look, I'm a military veteran. I own a small business and I'm the mayor of a small town. And all of those are generally uh, sort of things that, that – uh, makes you look good and it's hard to to attack somebody on so that's that's the case whether democratic primary voters will go along with it it remains to be seen and of course you have the the republican mm-hmm. side which is it's kind of a two-way contest between burr and, and greg brannon who ran uh, against tom tillis a few years ago um and the interesting thing from brannon this week was that uh he had a fundraising email that um basically mapped out his strategy for how he wants to defeat Burr in the primary, that he thinks that if he can get uh, the supporters for Donald Trump, the people who are voting for um, Ted Cruz and Ben Carson and Rand Paul all to support him and not Burr, then he'd get 60% of the vote and he could run for Senate in the fall. Okay. Whether he actually can line up the every single supporter of four different presidential candidates remains to be seen. And you mentioned Tom Tillis, obviously the other North Carolina U.S. senator who unseated uh, Kay Hagan. And of course, he's not up for election this year. But Kay Hagan's name has kind of come back into the yes. the, the, the sphere a little bit. Yes, Lynn Bonner, for why? Who was out of office and and decided not to run? She's made some news this week. Uh, first, that she has taken. A position as an advisor with one of the biggest lobbying and law firms in Washington as, a, as an advisor, then that um, there is an investigation related to uh, a grant her uh, husband's company received um, under the stimulus. So um, the a Washington publication did an interview with her uh, talking about her new job and, and why she decided not to run against Burr. The Dem- she was the top target for um, Washington Democrats to take mm-hmm. on Burr. Um, and she said, well, her response was, well, I expected to win um, two years ago. But um, – uh, the question, you know, is well, did she know that this investigation was going to was or this issue of the stimulus grant was going to continue if she decided to uh, to challenge Burr? So, um, yeah, a lot of news um, this week for someone who is is no longer in office. Right. Yeah. And so th- there might be a, a timeline to follow here too, with more stories in the future. I mean, exactly. do we get a sense of what might be coming? Or well. Um, we need to uh, – well, the next question is, of course, well, what's the result of, of this investigation, mm-hmm. if anything, um, and how long that might take? It's interesting that, um, you know, this came up at toward the end of her campaign, uh, and it's an issue that's that's still alive. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Lynn. And, Colin, real quick before we get to headliners, um, you know, the committee meetings this week, we've sat in on a, a, a few together. There was one yesterday that was kind of uh, – 
sort of off the radar. It, it coincided time-wise with the justice and public safety. Yeah, so we were the only reporters there, and it was, the, it was called the Agriculture and Forestry Awareness, Awareness Commission. commission. Yeah. So it wasn't even a full-fledged committee. It was a commission. So it was right. a, a mix of legislators and, and folks who were mostly like farmers who had mm-hmm. been appointed to this committee. Uh, but yeah, it was real, really interesting. Um, yeah, some the, of the topics they hit, um, solar farms. There was some concern that solar farms uh, are kind of playing into the agriculture land loss issue that uh, the Agriculture Commissioner Steve Troxler is really concerned about and the solar people saying, no, that's that's totally overblown. Solar panels are not destroying farmland and they're not really consuming that much either. It's like 0.036% of the 8.5 million yeah, acres. But what, and, what caught my ear, and I wasn't really paying that much attention to that initially because I was there to cover the report on uh, industrial hemp legalization. But right. then I heard uh, the Senator Bill Cook say that he was concerned that uh, – solar panels would ruin farmland, not just in the temporary period where you can't grow stuff under a solar panel, but permanently because of the lingering impacts of having hosted solar panels, which is a argument I hadn't heard before. But I guess we gathered that there's some basis for that. There's some reports that indicated that. that he Yeah, I'm definitely no expert on the science, but uh, some things I've read kind of take a different, not that it would kill the ground beneath it, but that... um, it would uh, solar panels are going to take some of the sunlight and then the remainder of the sun power is going to fuel weed growth uh uh shrubs that sort of thing beneath it that's going to take a lot of uh time for the landowner to 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 fight back on yeah. mowing herbicides that might impact the land ultimately zinc and, might leach into the soil from the metal supports that are on the solar panels yeah and, there's a lot of arguments and a lot to sort out and uh, of course you know with the, the the tax credits um kind of thinning away yeah there's uh, certainly an anti-solar mindset in the, yeah. a lot of the legislature and a, a pretty sizable wing of the republican party i think but um, right and and there, there's a there's a big lobby um and re- really for all sides of energy of course uh trying to steer the message one way or the other so it's it's, it's it's kind of dicey to follow, um, but uh, the, the other thing from this meeting, uh, industrial hemp. What's what's up with that? Yeah, so that's uh, something I wrote about back in November. Uh, it sort of very uh, quietly became law of the land that uh, industrial hemp farming is now legal after having been lumped in there with marijuana as a controlled substance that you couldn't grow in North Carolina. Uh, the governor didn't sign the bill, so it became law without a signature at the end of October. Right. And the hemp boosters were really excited to sort of start the process, get the regulatory framework in place, and get to growing some hemp. Well, yeah, that hasn't happened yet, from what we heard yesterday. And and there was some dwelling on marijuana as well at the committee meeting yesterday too. Uh, and I think in a way where if someone was uninitiated with the issue might think that North Carolina legalized marijuana, which is not the case. But there was some concern about, you know, what are we going to do when people are smoking marijuana while they're driving? And- yeah, there were a couple members of the commission that seemed to, after hearing from the lawyer who was uh, at the agriculture department that was handling this hemp thing, really thought we were talking about marijuana, which, of yeah. course, the legislature uh, briefly toyed with the idea of just allowing some sort of low-level medicinal marijuana legalization and very quickly shut that down. So right. we're, we're nowhere close to legalizing <laughs> marijuana in North Carolina. But uh, that's a sort of stigma that hemp has to face and I think is part of why we're going to see some discussion about hemp in the short session um, Representative Jimmy Dixon was very concerned about how quickly the legislation moved, that he didn't think it got enough um, review from the agricultural committees uh, that would normally uh, have a it, hearing. It was a on quick bill like at the end of the session. Yeah, it, yeah. Just, it subbed in for a different bill that had nothing to do with hemp and was passed in a matter of days. It passed fairly overwhelmingly, but uh, with something where I think 
the hemp lobby realized they had to kind of push it through at the end because otherwise it would get wrapped up in the stigma. You'd have a lot of debate of, you know, if there going to be unintended consequences, is somebody going to be more in a position to grow marijuana now because this plant that looks a lot like marijuana right. is now growing mm-hmm. in fields across the state. Um, and I think we're going to hear those voiced again when, when Representative Dixon brings up the issue again to try to, uh, I, I guess, at least get the legislature to have some sort of stamp on how the regulatory framework works. But in the meantime, they still have to raise two hundred grand to even start the regulatory process of creating a commission that's going to come up with the rules and everything. And it's incumbent on the supporters of hemp to to raise that $200,000, and they haven't done it yet. All right. Well, thanks for covering this, because uh, there's still apparently some confusion as to, uh, to what's in law right now. So uh, we're going to take a break and come back with Headliners of the Week. Be right back. Everyone loves listening to music, but have you ever stopped to think about why it's great for kids to learn to play music? Hi, I'm Darius Rucker from Hooting the Blowfish. These days, it seems people focus way too much on the economics of school music instead of an amazing positive effect it has on kids. It's such a thrill for a child when he or she gets the first instrument or masters a simple part on the flute or performs a showstopper with a school chorus. And there's so much music out there to play and listen to. When kids learn to appreciate a show tune, a Beethoven symphony, or an opera, in addition to what they hear on the radio, it only opens their young minds to the diversity of the world around them. Make sure your kids learn to love music. Support your school music program. A PSA brought to you by the National Association for Music Education. All right, we're back on the Domecast, and now it's time for... Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. And I got to apologize uh, because we, we, we upset a few uh, uh, special Domecast listeners by, uh, and it's totally my fault, neglecting to put in the... Well, I didn't introduce it last week in well, my rookie experience of hosting. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I... I Maybe could have done some clever editing to, to work something in, but I just neglected to include the headliner rap. Yeah, which uh, we we can't leave out. It has to be permanently in there because our our fans demand it, or we'll be getting you know Twitter comments all weekend long about how we ruin people's yeah, lives by not giving them that that weekly jolt of Andy Curlis. Yeah, so I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, it's especially to the people who have it as a ringtone, but uh, uh, we'll give you a call and you get to hear it. Um, headliners of the week. Uh, Lynn Bonner, let's uh, let's start with you. Um, who's your nominee? And you got 45 seconds. All right. I'm going to pick Christine Mumo in the news this week. She's a, an attorney who is known for getting people who are wrongly convicted out of prison. She was um, she had a disciplinary hearing at the bar uh, this week because um, she was accused of uh, taking a water bottle someone used out of their home and collecting their DNA without their knowledge. Um, she could have lost her license over this. What ended up was uh, a reprimand, so um, she can uh, continue being a lawyer. Uh, so I'll pick uh, Chrissy Muma as, as my headliner. Okay. Muma in the hat. And we got a thin crowd today, but uh, we're going to take one more Nominee for headliners, Colin, who you got? Well, I'm going to go with uh, Representative Skip Stam, who was uh, in the news this week because he did not have Powerball fever as uh, the the jackpot grew higher and higher. Uh, Stam opted to throw some cold water on the whole situation and uh, point out to people that the, uh, the odds of winning are really not very good. And even though the odds of winning some sort of prize might look good, 
it's really that that's the odds of winning like four dollars and it's not you know any sort of money that someone would get excited about uh so he sort of used this whole uh powerball in the news thing to to push his um request that he's made i think in a couple of legislative sessions uh for more of a truth in advertising law for the north carolina lottery to uh more accurately describe the odds of winning different levels of prizes uh he feels like it's important because uh, the folks who play the lottery in his mind are, are typically more uh, poor and uneducated folks, uh, and, and therefore need help understanding what they're getting themselves into, um, when they play the lottery. Of course, he was roundly ridiculed for that statement by some people who, uh, I think the Indie Week, uh, headline was something along the lines of, uh, uh, Skip Stam will help you with your gambling problem. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> I, I saw that too, and I got that press release, and I think he said something like, uh, there, there's not a lot of jacks in the pot or something. Yeah, like. Jack, no, not, not many jacks in the pot, even though it's a jackpot, so. Right, and I, I remember one, wrinkle was that uh he i think took issue with advertising it as you know like a a one and a half billion dollar prize if you account for this and that and and yeah that's if you don't take the lump sum if you take the lump sum it's actually like 900 million which most people would be happy to win 900 million but be okay with that um but i guess if you i guess you take payments over the course of your lifetime you could maybe get a million and a half before taxes or something. But. Right. right. And that's if you don't have to split it with some other people. I mean, there were three winning tickets. So yeah. That, uh, yeah. And then, you know, if you played an office pool, then you're really yeah, out of luck or you're yeah. all suing each other. One yeah, or you're the down other. to 50 million. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Sam's a lawyer. Maybe he'll get some work. Um, this is tough. We got uh, a head-to-head. So, um, you know, I, I'm inclined to pick Stam, but I think Muma is going to be my pick in the end, uh, a lot of high-profile work, right. and um, uh, anything happened from this point on for, for Muma as far as this goes? Yeah, I think she, uh, as far as I know, continues to work. Yeah, okay, well. <laughs> Get some more of those uh, wrongly convicted folks out of uh, prison. Uh, prison. Right. Okay, well, um, thank you guys for listening, and bearing with me is my first time hosting for the Domecast this time since uh, our um, brave and intrepid and whatever other adjectives you want to use uh, for Andy Curlis. We're in the post-Curlis period for Domecast. And also, you know, if you guys have any ideas for what you'd um, like to hear within reason for Domecast, because we're also full-time reporters as well. My opinions will never be on Domecast. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you guys uh, for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thanks, Ben. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 